Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Captured at Sea is a pirate story of a different kind. Based on years of ethnographic fieldwork in Somalia, the UK, and other parts of Africa and the Middle East, Professor Dua describes a tale that is not often told, how piracy works in the everyday lives of those involved in its grip. Professor Dua's book draws from interviews and participant observation with pirates, merchants who were seized by pirates, merchants who supply pirates, insurance brokers who indemnify pirates' victims, and many others who are involved in the intimate social, and entirely real world of modern-day piracy in the Red and Arabian Seas. We'll talk to him about how he became interested in this subject, as well as how he managed to break into the world of piracy and insurance, which was the more treacherous is an open question. We discuss the social and historical origins of piracy in this part of the world, as well as what it means to be part of the social web of piracy. Thank you for joining us today on the New Books Network, uh, Books and Anthropology, Professor Dua. Uh, how are things up in Michigan? Uh, things are going well. I think, you know, we're all adjusting to this new sort of coronavirus-inflicted reality and uh, trying to s- stumble our way through and hopefully trying to find ways to you know, take care of each other virtually as much as we can. Yeah, well, and it's also a great time for uh, reading and talking about books. Yes, absolutely. I definitely have a have a list of books that I I had for the summer that I'm hoping to try and start, you know, catching up on sooner rather than later. Okay, great. So, we are sitting here with your newest book and uh, it's a very interesting one, particularly interesting as as many ethnographies are is the story. How did you come how did you happen upon this topic and uh what really got you involved in it? Yeah, so so in some ways, you know, some of these questions that led me to Captured at Sea kind of began prior to graduate school. I uh, before graduate school, I had I was working as a human rights researcher in Central Africa, primarily in Eastern Congo, and and I ended up on a project that was looking at mining and and in particular sort of gold mining and these networks that were taking gold from mines in Congo and it was showing up in Uganda where all of a sudden for a year Uganda became one of the largest exporters of gold without having a single kind of gold re- reserve in its national borders and and then in like gold souks in Dubai and and as we were doing this research, and you know, this was very much in the vein of thinking about corporate social responsibility and uh, uh, ideas about corporate governance, we've realized this entire sort of network of primarily South Asian merchants who had been there for a really long time in this region was also central to moving things in and out of uh, Eastern Congo, and and it. And like many, I had very little idea about South Asian diasporic communities outside of, say, the U.S. or England, which are the kind of more 
predominant ones uh, in in sort of our imaginary and and I got really fascinated by it and I think I got really interested in looking at this larger question of Indian Ocean networks and and so it happened I was uh, back in the region for language training and as I was working along that I came across people who kept talking about pirates and not pirates as these sort of mythical historical figures, but actual real life hijackings that were happening. And this was around sort of like 2007, 2008. So right before Somali piracy kind of become something, you know, in the global imagination. And, and at this, and, and I think I got really intrigued by the ways that, Questions about piracy seem to bridge these interests that I have in thinking about the nature of law and order in spaces that are tra- are transregional and and as well as questions around economy and finally the relationship between history and the present and history and anthropology. So 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 in some ways it was you know that's that's the kind of longer story of how piracy became a topic and an interest that then I gravitated towards in, in graduate school and then eventually in this book. So did you just start with the Somali pirates? It sounded like from the book, kind of the narrative you gave, um, maybe hidden within the narrative is you started in Kenya, I believe, and then moved mm-hmm. into Somalia. So could you talk about like the arc of your field work? Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, so when I had this idea that I, wa- I was interested in piracy, it was also simultaneously a time when uh, there were all of these national courts that were being set up, funded primarily by the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, UNODC, and other UN agencies on prosecuting piracy in national jurisdictions. And I have you know, a background in human rights law and was very intrigued by by the idea of like piracy as as a criminal question and pirate, pirates on trial, so so I began this research as you said in in courtrooms in Kenya in the High Court in Mombasa, and but as it so happened, uh, as I was starting research, the the trials were halted due to jurisdictional questions. The Kenyan High Court decided that Kenya in fact did not have jurisdiction over piracy because most of these pirate attacks were taking place not necessarily in international waters but in Somali territorial waters and um, at that time at least and so 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 with the courts closed it was just sort of happenstance that I found myself living quite close to the port and and had access to the port through uh, through these various local networks and and uh, and sort of got very interested in the question. Somalia remains and was and remains a import dependent economy. And while, you know, cargo ships and others were avoiding it, there was this entire network of shipping that seemed to be um, still going to Somalia. So, so then the project kind of found itself moving from thinking about the pirate as a figure in the courtroom to just the ways that piracy was impacting ways of risk management at ports and understandings of you know like sea routes and sea lanes who was uh, and that and that led me to eventually move from Kenya to 
the United Arab Emirates to India, where um, particularly the western coast of India, where a lot of the ships that were going to Somalia were coming from, and then eventually to uh, Somaliland and Puntland in northern Somalia, Puntland, which was the epicenter of the kind of piracy um, operations at that time, and uh, and yeah, so so it beca- you know it became very much trying to then locate piracy within this larger sphere of interactions and both in Somalia but also in on onboard ships but finally in um, insurance companies as well where people were trying to understand both you know how to manage risk but also that the modes that this kind of risk management gave to creating possibilities for profit and governance over shipping yeah, and you know, one of the things I find interesting about this is, as anthropologists, I think sometimes we don't always talk a lot about some of the really nitty gritty things about our field work. And so <clears throat> here, you obviously have some difficult situations to get into. But one of the things I found really interesting, and, you know, again, thinking about the field work I've done in the US and Mauritania, thinking about, you know, access to things, because here you have at least the two, two of the major sites of your field work were an insurance company and that kind of network in London, and then these Somali pirates in Somalia. And I find that really fascinating because both are, to me, it seems like difficult sites to access people, to gain people's trust, to really network and find informants, but for different ways. I think for Somalia, perhaps because it is such a uh, a kinship-based structure and you know, the London Insurance Exchange, because it's the opposite of kinship-based structure. You know, it's, it's very, it's still very tight, but it's, you know, kind of a, a, you have to know somebody to get in. You have to have some kind, I would imagine, some kind of affiliation with a bank or something. So how were you able to break into these uh, organizations, so to speak, and find informants? And what was the rapport with these individuals like? I'm glad you're you're talking about both the uh, the London insurance companies and Somalia because oftentimes there's this you know we imagine that that one space is transparent in certain ways and and when people you know in general when people are like oh piracy Somalia that must have been dangerous or uh, talk about access they're usually thinking about Somalia but but you know in some ways London insurance companies were far more difficult to get access to at times and and seemed to be far more closed off vis-a-vis kinship networks and and other kinds of systems of prestige and you know like I had to be vouched for in in essence um, to be able to do that by someone who was an insurance man and you know these are both very gendered worlds and and in in very interesting ways uh, so, so a lot of yeah, so a lot of access was really through the kinds of personal networks that sometimes through happenstance, like it just so happened that someone I knew in um, uh, you know when I had studied law had ended up working in maritime law and knew an insurance agent who had an insurance agency in Mombasa and then in Dubai, and then through that, the kind of very you know sort of pushing and prodding people, I finally got the chance to be at a subsidiary of of one of the larger kind of reinsurance companies in London and and spend time there. And similarly with Somalia, I was very much working with these 
these shipping companies and these boats, the these Indian boats called Dows, and you know they had they had contacts in Somalia who would, if their ships were hijacked, would call and you know would say like, we know the pirates, we can get in touch with them and make sure that you pass these waters without trouble. And and it required having someone vouch for me and 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 so and in some ways and that kind of led to this larger concept in the book that I I think through and because as I was making field work happen, in some ways I realized people talked a lot about, you know, obligation and and these forms of connectivity, but also about ideas of protection and in various ways, right? So they um, and and in some ways, my work then sort of made me realize just the, the experience of field work made me realize that, wait, like we imagine Somalia is is where piracy is, is radically different from these London insurance companies. But both in the kind of rhetoric that they use when they talk about what what it is that they're they are doing vis-a-vis shipping and, you know, they both made claims about protection. And and the ways that they are kind of protection rackets, right? That that other way of thinking of protection as as something that is that is about um, uh, you know has a has a form of threat and 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 this mafia like character to it. So, so so part of the research was arguing against or thinking about like why is it that our ways of understanding legality, our ways of understanding economy would imagine kind of insurance offices in London to be radically different and distinct and in some ways operating with different logics than than these worlds of kinship in Somalia. And in fact, you know, yes, they all have very different histories, very different stories of obligation that that undergird them. But nonetheless, what I try to do in the work which came very much from my experience of realizing the mirrored ways in which how fieldwork access was happening was was to sort of bring these two worlds together. Right. Yeah, and you know that's that's what's really really interesting and I think about the book is that if you take a, a larger view, it's clear these two worlds have to be linked because they're negotiating with each other and dealing with the same things, but you don't really realize that until I think you're kind of looking at the nuts and bolts and the structure of it. If you're, you know, just reading headlines about pirates in the news, it kind of seems exotic and removed from reality. So one of the things I wondered right while reading this is how did these networks develop between the insurance companies and the Somali pirates? Like how did these intermediaries come to intermediate? Yeah, great. Uh, so and and you know so part of what's important to remember right is that somali piracy unlike say forms of hijacking in other parts of the world like in the gulf of guinea where sometimes you have what's called oil bunkering which is the stealing of oil from cargo ships or in the straits of malacca in southeast asia where sometimes whole ships disappear somali piracy was a ransom economy it was all about extracting cash um you know, U.S. dollars in particular from this temporary interruption of global logistics chains for and you know the the sort of holding of a ship and and what was fascinating in these interviews was was precisely seeing the 
the various kinds of mediation and, and the various sort of forms of intermediaries that that came in, right? And 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 this was as much about on both sides that like you had. So on the insurance side, you have um, so depending on what ship it was, whether they had what's called a kidnap and ransom insurance package, which is a KNR package, which essentially um, is a specialized form of insurance that deals specifically with negotiations. So they had hostage negotiators and and others that kind of came in with this, like what they call the comprehensive package of protection for ships transiting through the Gulf of Aden. And and similarly on the Somali side, once a ship would be hijacked, brought close to shore, um, a whole network would sort of come together and and. And this changed from, you know, there was a kind of dynamism to it from 2008 to 2012, which was the peak of piracy, where where Somali pirates started in some ways learning about shipping and learning about flags of convenience. The fact that if a ship said it was registered in Malta, it didn't mean that actually the company was in Malta. The company could be, you know, in the Cayman Islands, but actually is a subsidiary of a, a Danish company. And so part of it was just sometimes trying to figure out who actually the, the person on the other end of the, the phone line should be, like where they were located. And, and also the value of hostages and negotiate and, you know, and how to negotiate that. So, so that was one of the things that was really fascinating to try and understand was just all of these people who could have, you know, became intermediaries in particular the negotiators but then also the lawyers the pilots the the people who were dropping off cash because this was a very much a sort of cash and carry economy and and some were very you know some have been doing this for a long time so on the insurance side i interviewed people who had been um, working in Latin America and Colombia and other places. And so this was just a new market for them, and they talked in those terms. And for, you know, for a lot of Somali pirates, it was, it was these longer, it was these kind of wider networks of, of kinship that, that could be transformed in these moments where someone could say, oh, you know, I, I speak English and I can help negotiate this for you. And and if they succeeded, then then they became a negotiator and and through that process became kind of you know a successful intermediary. So part of the book looks at precisely like how inter you know that this was a deeply mediated world and how those intermediaries emerge and how they transform. Right. So as because it was also a very dynamic economy and as things changed with larger regulatory structures, when you had private security contractors who could come on board, then the kind of negotiation changed, right? You no longer were negotiating. You were, you had, one side had guns and the other side did not in some ways. And, you know, the figure of the intermediary here, I think is really interesting. I, uh, it reminds me in some ways of, um, and this was not a focus of the book. So, um, Perhaps I'm putting you on the spot here unfairly, but it reminds me actually of some of the literature on entrepreneurship in a way about the entrepreneur, you know, particularly in kind of um, maybe more like Austrian economics, where the entrepreneur is viewed as this kind of uh, pioneering figure who goes out and 
and tries to find opportunities to make money. And it kind of struck me reading the book that in some ways these intermediaries, you know, potentially kind of were this because they were, it seems like in your narrative, really shaping the economy of piracy. So, I mean, individually, how did these on, how did these, um, these intermediaries, like the people who spoke English and whatnot, manage to do this? Was it that they um, kind of just showed up and said, hey, I speak English? Did they have a particular position within the kinship networks and the kinship groups? Um, and if you could talk a little bit about the role of kinship and the kinship group in piracy as well, that's a lot, I know. But <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, so, and, you know, there's it's fascinating because there's also a larger literature on that has kind of valorized Somali entrepreneurship and and some and very rightly uh, so in some ways uh, you know uh, in particular around questions of statelessness and and the ways that Somalis have been you know able to craft these intense um the dense transregional economies in the absence of central state structures you know I'm, I and it's not again it's not something that I very you know it wasn't a, a thing that I necessarily focused on too much in the book but but it's it was framing because part of me wanted to write against this valorization of this figure right because what what that does is often forgets the the very real hardships that that shape and have continued to shape Somalia and its relationship within a global system, right? So, so if we kind of valorize Somali entrepreneurship, we forget all the way, all the kinds of reasons why Somalis, you know, Somalis basically state or its lack thereof exists for, for particular historical reasons that are tied to, you know, the Cold War and U.S. and you know and other kind of Western interventions as well, right? So, so that's part of the reason why, in some ways, the book shies away from sort of saying, like, look, these are these heroic intermediary figures or these heroic entrepreneurial figures, in part because I want to write against some of this this kind of way in which, amongst also a certain libertarian Hayekian inspired. Um, economists in particular that they kind of sort of say like oh somalia could be a model for what the world could look like without a state and and as we see in various ways we do need states right and um and or at least systems of of protection and um, yeah if i can i don't mean to interrupt yeah. you but it just no, no. that just reminded me of you do have the the this citation reference in your in your bibliography but i i have kind of floated around some of those circles a little bit and it always amuses me they always talk about peter leeson's book on pirates as like right. this is an example of how we could just get rid of the state i'm always like well yeah, i mean that's true but violence then is what replaces the state <laughs> and so <laughs> you know it's like there is order possible without the state it's just you might not like how that order is produced Absolutely. And, and the kind of and, and it doesn't solve precisely doesn't solve the problem, which I, I don't think at least the ones who are reading Leeson in, in certain ways aren't necessarily trying to figure out how to get away from the violence of the state. Right. What it, and that's part of what I also am trying to understand here, how that gets distributed unequally amongst various entities right so so we're not just because there is no larger state structure that's regulating the western indian ocean doesn't mean that these are not 
you know, systems that are policed with incredible degrees of violence. So, so yeah, no, uh, um, it's, that's, that's always, so, so in that sense, there's a, you know, there's, when I think of entrepreneurship, I guess I wanted to like both think about some, there's something quite incredible about this, right? About six, seven people being able to hold a ship that is the size of two, three football fields, hostage extract ransoms from um, that are airdropped onto these ships, and then you know, in the eyes of the world, and kind of continue this process. So there, so there's a sense, a recognition of like the important, you know, that, that there was something sort of spectacular. But part of what I realized what made that spectacle possible, and this this is me returning to your in a long way to the question of kinship, and is is what were various ways in which protection and risk were distributed through networks that we can call for lack, you know, at times lack of a better word, kinship, right? These were, these were claim, kinship provided away. So the, in particular, uh, forms of risk pooling that came with, um, with these kinship networks, in particular, the, uh, the DIAT, which, which is, a which is a system essentially ostensibly for, that creates a kind of social responsibility for repayment in moments of injury, right? So it's like it's a it's it's a system of tort, in essence. And and what was fascinating was seeing how these this principle of collective obligation and collective um, along kinship lines became central to how in ver- at various points within the piracy economy. In Somalia. So what I mean by that is, you know, these networks were the ones that would help sometimes draw on an initial form of, uh, you know, capital pool that you could then say, okay, now, you know, we're going to go hijack, uh, we're going to go get a ship, and I want you to contribute. And the reason I want you to contribute is because as as a sort of member of my larger extended kin network, you you know, you owe me this. And there were also ways to negotiate the time that people spent in while waiting for ransoms, right? So so part of what made piracy, quote unquote, legitimate from the perspective of the Somali pirate was precisely saying, look, this is a business transaction. This is I am I'm keeping the hostages and crew safe. As soon as I get a payment, I will release them. And that which required feeding, feeding the hostages, feeding the guards who were around. And and so there, too, you would see how claims were made on each other through through these extended kinship networks. And and, and you know, and, and, and I don't want to sort of essentialize kinship because there were also people who said, no, I, I just because just because you we are part of a same dia group, I do not have to invest in piracy i think it is haram and and there was certain you know there was a larger ethical debate about the nature of piracy and and so people could at times also sort of turn their back on kin but nonetheless there was a way in which kinship appears and and dia groups appear at all of these moments as you know for as, as essentially kind of guaranteeing these forms of encounter across the making possible piracy, making possible the waiting of piracy and absorbing losses. Right. And that's not, 
so different from the way that the groups were central in navigating this larger transregional trade network of Somalia. And, and that's part of the sort of story that I want to tell in the book is, is where does piracy end and other kinds of economic practice begin, both in Somalia, but also in London. And, you know, where kinship of a different kind, where, where everyone had, you know, you had, especially amongst the negotiators, it was about, you know, where had, where had we been trained together? We went to Sandhurst, you went to all of these kind of elite academies and then had served in the special services. And then, and that's how one could guarantee that you were, you could, you were an intermediary we would hire because I know this man from you know, from my time in the military together, right? Which is which is a different form, but but certainly not completely distinct in how one makes claims on intermediaries and others. Yeah, I mean, I think that point is 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 really interesting. You know, being a military veteran myself, I've experienced a number of these networks, and and it is interesting because the DIA group, um, which you know. Uh, which is important, these feuding groups in, in, in the whole region. Um, you know, people are, for example, familiar with the concept of Asabia from Ibn Khaldun's uh, Muqaddama, but the actual origin of that term is Asab, which is the Arabic version of Adia. It was the feuding group. Um, and, you know, and so that obviously, the feud was the root of that, which involved conflict. And so these military connections, likewise, you know, you they're strong because they involve, I think, a sense of preparation for conflict and, and, and willingness to do it. And so I, I thought that was that was very interesting. I also thought there was kind of an interesting parallel. I don't know if you, you thought about this between some of this discussion about um, about the, the pirate group leaders and uh, Malinowski's discussion about um, the owner of canoes in the, the Trobri and uh, the Kula cycle. Um, how, you know, the, the owner of the canoe I think often there works kinship involved there, but he provided kind of a certain, um, he provided basically the capital for lack of a better term. That's not the right word to use, but, you know, provided the, the wealth to put the canoe together and, uh, the resources to do it. That's probably a better term. And then through his patronage, um, he allowed a, a group of other people to accompany him in the Kula trade, which kind of knit them all together into this whole trading cycle. And so, you know, I'm not going to put you on that. You can talk about that if you want, but I know it's, you didn't mention your book, so I don't want to put you too much on the spot. But the other thing that I thought really kind of came out of what you just said was <clears throat> something I was thinking about while reading the book, which there seems to be an uneasy tension here between violence and the moral value of piracy in Somalia, and really the moral value of piracy in Somalia, and maybe the moral value of violence on the side of the cargo shippers, right? Because reading the book kind of, you know, putting on my, maybe my military hat, but kind of the idea of how do I end this threat as quickly as possible? I think the answer is what people used to do with pirates, which is collect them all and then hang them, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. is the problem. So, you know, why, why is violence something that is not more present in this narrative? I mean, you, you bring it up sometimes and there is kind of a threat when people come on board of violence being in the background. And there are obviously incidents of violence like the uh, Captain Phillips situation where the SEAL snipers shot the Somali pirates. But it's really when you encounter violence, it's a very low level often in the book. And I think this is probably true in, in Somali piracy in general, where it's water cannons or you know, the sound gun or whatever it is. It's these um, quote unquote, you know, non-lethal 
uh, techniques of, of preventing piracy. So, you know, it seems like there's a lot of moral ambivalence here on the side of the insurance companies and the military in terms of we want to make this a military effort, but we don't want to make it violent, which it's always, I think, questionable how a military effort can be nonviolent. And then also on the side of the Somalis who have some moral ambivalence in terms of, you know, this is helping us. We can frame this in terms of protection for ourselves, protection for our coasts, protection of the fishing industry. But at the same time, um, a lot of people, as you mentioned, don't want to be involved in the piracy and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, so I realize that's probably a lot to talk about, but uh, uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the moral ambiguities here. Absolutely, and and in some ways that is this you know this this question that you brought up of the moral ambiguity of violence is is at is at heart of this film, right? and in some ways it, it's it's why the term protection came became the kind of the the structure through which I came to understand all of these different worlds and the kinds of claims they were making because unlike you know so i think there's there's a way in which we imagine empire and 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 as you said like historically and even in contemporary you know like there's the violence of the drone there's there's uh which is which is about the right to kill and the ability to kill in in and and i think part of you know so so part of what i had learned in graduate school or read or engaged with was thinking about larger questions on you know on sovereignty in particular on on this question of you know when 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 does one when does one get to kill and 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 what is the sort of role of of the state or of these other kinds of entities in that and and i think piracy somali piracy is is an interesting, not necessarily, like it is, it is a space saturated with violence, right? There is the violence of arrival, as I, as I highlight repeatedly, when someone comes with guns. And, but what is important and fascinating to note there is that it's also about precisely keeping violence at a level of threat, right? And, and there's, there's at one level a kind of crude economics you know sort of a crude kind of like homo economicus sort of reason for this that one could make which is look if you know like everyone kind of benefits from perhaps a little bit of piracy at sea right it gives the navies a sense of like we have a mission here and in a moment of crisis it gives private security contractors a raison it gives uh, insurance companies a source of profits obviously they in some ways if we look at just you know the profitability of this insurance companies probably make more than pirates do in this and um but but i think you know so but beyond that there there is it also does point at this i think something that has been understudied perhaps in in anthropology and political theory and others is is precisely the space of ambivalence Right, like, and how might and that 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 is more, far more prevalent than than either a kind of a split between sort of sovereignty biopolitics has us imagine, right? And where where it's either all about the right to kill or or like you know making live and letting die, and and 
but but the protection is is about and piracy sort of clearly showed me that there is this space where violence is central but but also gets backgrounded constantly and and what we have instead are are these temporary forms of connection that emerge where where it all could break down if one party becomes violent, right? If the shipping companies and uh, say, no, we're just not going to deal with that. And sometimes that would happen. A shipping company would say, okay, we, it's too expensive for us. We underinsured. The insurance company is going to help us. And in one pretty horrific case, the shipping company basically abandoned its crew and said, you're on your own. We're not going to pay anything, which led to you know a kind of scaling up of violence on the part of pirates and trying to get money from families and others. And it was you know, a sort of terrifying ordeal. Or as you mentioned with um, the Captain Phillips, the uh, Merce, Alabama, or, or other cases where there have been military interventions. But for the most part, sort of, you know, these jurisdiction is claimed through this kind of constant backgrounding of violence. Like, and, and I guess that's what I want to emphasize in the book is is this larger way in which threat ambiguity are equally central to how we move through the world and and that's and that's part of the story of piracy and 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 you know and and again that is something that became very visible in field work oftentimes most of the field work that i did in northern somalia was was you know was basically you were kind of held captive in a place and i ostensibly people would say well this is for your protection but you know but you have to stay with us and we have to escort you and then then i started thinking about the longer histories of these of these practices of escort that where captivity blurs into hospitality and hospitality blurs into captivity and instead of explaining that away, right, instead of sort of saying, well, this is because it's profitable for all these entities or saying that, you know, this is an anomaly. I think what I want to do is actually just say, like, let's let's think about the space of jurisdiction that is built on on kind of care and threat and captivity. And and I guess that's, you know, so it's a sort of longer, perhaps non-answer to your question, but but it's yeah, it's it's it is to try and both ethnographically and theoretically sort of grapple with this question of you know what do we make of ambivalence as ambivalence as opposed to explaining it away. I mean that's I think that's a great great answer and um, it does bring to mind another <clears throat> maybe another point which you know there is both in the anthropological literature and in. I don't want to call it maybe popular literature, but travel literature, exploration literature, geographical literature, whatever you want to call it, a long tradition of discussing these hospitality customs, which are very common in uh, particularly North Africa, running to uh, kind of the borders of China, of these requirements of um, hospitality with ambivalence. You know, you often read it in Afghanistan with this Pashtun concept called Nanawata. Um, but also exists among the Arabs where you can claim it and people give it to you and they might give it to you even if they don't really want to, you know, but they're, but they're required to. Um, and so, and that definitely, there's one great chapter in your book where you really talk a lot about that and how that builds different ties. 
So my kind of question then about that is, and maybe this will be an easy one, maybe it'll be a hard one, but how culturally specific is this ambivalence and this, you know, hospitality construct to, you know, this part of the world? Um, do you think this is something that can be just said of human beings in general, or do you think this is uh, kind of a a thing that is really localized to these particular conditions? Ah, uh, the sort of... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. It's, I, I gave you a hard one. I didn't intend it to be that right. hard when I started winding up, but then I just figured I would go with it to the end. Right. I was like, ah, so you want me to reflect on universals and or particular? I mean, maybe you don't have to go that far, but I mean, right, you know, right. just what, 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 what about it? About this? Is it more this situation, this particular cultural instance, or you know, is this a reflection on here? How about I put it this way? This is the way I intended to put it. Um, is this uh, an ambiguity of violence that? It just kind of is inherent in hospitality relations that we have in general wherever we go? Or is there a particular kind of thing about the Somali example that makes this kind of piracy possible here where it may not be possible elsewhere? That's yeah. that, And I think that's definitely something that I reflect on a lot. And my way of um, in some ways not answering, but answering that question in the book is to sort of say, look, this is part of a wider Indian Ocean mode, perhaps we could say, of of engaging strangers, right? And and at least that's the in some ways because that's the historical archive that I'm comfortable with, I'm familiar with. That's the world that the people that I was talking to on these boats that were coming from Western India, as well as and and their encounters with Somali pirates and others, were constantly referring back to. Right, those were the sort of cosmologies within which these contemporary encounters were being framed. And so, in that sense, I guess for me, yes, this is there is a specificity to it. There is a there is a sort of locatedness to it. Um, and that specificity perhaps does tie to this larger social world that many, you know, historians and anthropologists have sort of talked of as Indian Ocean societies. And there's been sort of debates about what that in essentially entails, who's included in it, who's not. But keeping that aside for a minute, you know, like one of the things that I was struck with, and this is something that comes up in the book, is are these travel, these rihalats, the travel narratives of Ibn Battuta, right? And when he lands in Mogadishu, what he describes is this principle of aban, of uh, of uh, protection, of hospitality, that very much resonates with how what were you know ship protectors. So in the kind of in the first chapter, I mean, I give this sort of history of piracy, and part of that is tied to people who basically sometimes were fishermen, coastal communities that kind of went to fishing trawlers and others and said, we will protect you in these waters as long as, you know, you pay us, create a kind of patron-client relationship. And and there's a way in which these moments sort of clicked. Like, they were it was like, oh, what, you know, that we are that there is something to this specificity, that there is a recognizable way in which turning to Ibn Battuta and the, you know, or to uh, a Korean trawler, that, that some, that this relationship can be framed. So, so I guess that's, you know, if I think of 
like where is this located and you know yeah instead of trying to kind of think about hospitality writ large what i want to do here is think specifically about these instances of hospitality and kind of jurisdiction claiming jurisdiction that that are familiar in the indian ocean and how piracy is not apart from them right but very much a part of them yeah and and you raised in between and this reminds me of something i know we've had conversations about this before but you know my my interest is largely in the sahara and there you see and and also a little bit of arabia too is included in this but there you see long histories of you know even tribal confederacies that are in the protection racket, you know, going back to the trans-Saharan gold trade and basically survive largely by, I mean, you could say extorting, you could say protecting, often protecting from themselves, really, um, caravans moving across the desert. So I was curious, Somalia is obviously not really an inland caravan route, but historically, was there any, was there any of this, like a precedent of this protection uh, cycle either inland or coastal, you know, either historically operating offshore or onshore. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So, so Somalia was, I mean, you know, the Harar Sultanate in what is now present day Ethiopia. Um, a lot of caravan routes would go from kind of inland Ethiopia and make their way to ports like Zela, which is in on the Red Sea in northeastern. Uh, Somalia and Somaliland and and Berbera as well and and a lot of the groups that get it you know emerge again um, around piracy in the 2000s were groups that have oral traditions that date back to these moments of protectors of caravans and uh, and and you know and when in the 19th century the Italians and the British come there's also a similar way of transforming the Italians and the British into you know these similar subjects and saying okay we, we will offer you this form of protection and and you know and the kind of creation of the Somaliland protectorate and the various Italian protectorates in the region was built on the similar logic of payment and saying we want you to protect our ships and in return here's cash and and this certainly accelerates with the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869. And, and so in that sense, you know, that history is not, as, as I realize, it was not the kind of context, but very much a, an actor within this world. And, and I want to locate piracy within that history by, by saying, like, you know, piracy is a practice, perhaps, of making certain kinds of claims on the world. And there are and and in that sense is tied to these you know the these other ways of making claims on on mobility right the the trans-saharan uh the sahelian trade routes and and others so in that sense there's yeah so there this is i think this is not different from that world in fact it's it's again it's part of that history yeah so kind of in wrapping up our academic discussion it's kind of a I have a couple of academic bugbears, and Peter Leeson is, is one of them. Um, but so it kind of, again, gets, I think, back to this idea where we think of, often people think, and I'm kind of using Leeson as my example here, think of piracy as this kind of 
one very culturally specific, if it even existed the way this is often imagined, but you know, a kind of idealized 17th, 18th century piracy of a band of merry brothers coming together, really almost ad hoc in a um, unprecedented way, a way that kind of emerges directly from local and specific circumstances to come together to form some kind of an economic project and maybe a project of liberty or something. And again, I don't know whether piracy actually was ever like that, but that's kind of the imaginary. Whereas here, distinctively, I think uh, it seems like you're presenting a narrative of continuity and of uh, a fact of piracy being, you know, um, a development that we can see emerging from certain cultural conditions within uh, both Somalia and within Europe and the the cultural structure of insurance agencies. We often don't think of big corporations as having a cultural history and being culturally formed, of course, but they really are. So it really seems like. Uh, I wonder if you could just talk about that a little more to sum up about this really being something that is rooted in a cultural practice rather than just something that's a bunch of marauders coming together to get some money. Right. And and yeah, and I think that's, you know, when you start looking at histories of piracy, you often end up in in this space and there's there's some, you know, there's some wonderful work that's been done on Atlantic piracy that has that has looked at some of the kinds of forms of mobility and possibility that it opens up. And I'm thinking here specifically of like Marcus Redeker and others who who very much in the kind of liberatory tradition have have seen and, and I think you know quite convincingly argued that that there was something else afoot also than simply extraction and you know and drinking and all of the kinds of stereotypes that we have of piracy. But the part of yeah, so I don't mean to interrupt you again, but okay. it just reminds me, living in Tampa, you know, every year we have Gasparil, which is the pirate festival, and they bring the pirate ship in, and it's just, you know, you kind of walk, like, you walk around, and it's a little bit like a, kind of a fake Mardi Gras, and you're like, you know, for some reason, I don't think, pirates may have been drunker than this even, but I don't think they were having as good a time. <laughs> right. I, I, yeah, I think, I, I don't think many, and I teach this course on piracy, and, and when we look at some of these, in particular, I use pirate trials, right? So trial transcripts as a way to get them to to see sort of what daily life on pirate ships was like, because obviously so much of what we know of pirate myth comes from, you know, is a sort of Disneyfied version of this, right? And uh, and emerges much later kind of with the rise of industrial, you know, the industrial revolution. And we can, that's a separate conversation. But, um, but yeah, but I, at the end of the class, most students, you know, may have come in thinking like the pirate's life is for me, but then they're like, hell no, this is not something I'm going to do. Um, and, and it's fascinating how pirates kind of, you know, continue to nonetheless operate as these figures of, of merriment and joy. But going back to Somalia, uh, uh, so, so part of it is, yes, there is no kind of myth. I mean, there, there were moments of sort of spectac spectacles of consumption and which in fact led to many in local communities in Northern Somalia saying, you know, these pirates are out of hand and we no longer support them. But, um, but part of what, you know, the book is trying to do is, is precisely sort of locate piracy, not as, as outside history as outside these these larger social structures but say that there there's something you know the pirate is kind of 
for lack of a better word, within us, whether we're talking about coastal Somalia or insurance companies, right? And and this larger, w- the larger ways in which these worlds are making claims on forms of mobility and and are engaged in extractive projects, and how what are the what are the sort of political, legal, economic systems and social moral systems that then create piracy as distinct from other forms of taking. And I think to me that's, you know, instead of simply thinking of like who is the pirate, right? It's it's also asking where is piracy? And and that's that's part of what a, a way to kind of think uh, sort of you know like or I guess argue for a different way of thinking about piracy than then what we know from Leeson and others is is to sort of shift the terms of that debate, right? It is not to say we're pirates, you know, better off being pirate or not, or all the kinds of things that you know people who've looked at piracy, one of the questions they've asked, but it but it is to ask sort of like where is piracy? How do we and what is what are the ways in which something that is like a pirate economy is created as distinct from other kinds of economic practice or or pirate claims to jurisdiction are created as distinct from other forms of claims of jurisdiction. Yeah, great. So on that note, one of the traditions we have at New Books Network is asking what the person's next project is. And uh, so are you continuing this project or do you have a, a new project on board? What are your plans for the future? So it's still on board. It's still on ships. But, uh, but this time I've been spending a lot of time on container ships and cargo ships and so there there's a few projects that that I'm interested in around that one is just looking at the history and futures of seafaring as so so it's under this larger umbrella of imagining what what kind of futures shipping has right and this is pertinent in so many ways as we imagine supply chains and their and their um, limitations and what these things will look like in the future. But but part of there's been a lot of talk in shipping circles about automated ships, and and but then we've discovered that as a result of climate change and with storms and unpredictability, it's almost impossible to have ships that are going to be fully automated. So so one element of this project is looking precisely at this. This debate of what what does the future of labor look like at sea, and um, and then and then the second project turns a little more to uh, to a historical lens of and looking at the kinds of futures that were imagined at an earlier time between African and South Asian sailors and and it and it's sort of tentatively titled like Africa at Sea and it looks at because you know, often when we think of African mobility, it's either through the the kind of the ships that are are the you know the migrant ships or the slave ship, right? And that that sort of determines our ways of imagining African encounters with oceanic space. And part of what this project is trying to do is is look at from the 1960s onwards. Um, African seafarers who were trained in Philippines, South Asia, or in these maritime academies, and just just what they imagined that world to be, and what that world looks like today. So, so yeah, so it's still at sea, um, but but very much now thinking about what happens to bodies at sea. 
Yeah. Those are sound like two really fascinating projects. The first, I think, uh, really really highlights something I think that is overlooked in anthropology, uh, both within the discipline and without. And uh, I think some tech companies recognize it, but you know, you get all these grand visionaries who want to talk about what the future will be, and you know, they're often coming from the tech side, like the okay, how do we automate the ship? But then they so rarely think about, you know is that a good idea? But even more than that, like how will that impact people? And so, you know, I think it's, it's really great when anthropologists start getting involved in those conversations. Cause we, I think bring something to the table in a way that, that many times they don't. And, um, and the second project I also think is fascinating, you know, this sounds like this is probably going a little earlier than what you'll be looking at in it, but there's a whole history of the Indian ocean and African exchange with South Asia and Oman and Yemen that is just, you know, I mean, it's the subject of specialist literature, but you would think that the Africans, when they go see, as you said, only ever entered the Atlantic and that they never went the other direction. Right. Absolutely. And that and that history is is sort of rich and fascinating. And and, and I think a really important archive to think across oceans. And this is what I'm you know, sort of hoping to do with that second project is also think of like, what might it mean not to sort of silo ourselves in in the Indian Ocean versus the Atlantic versus the Pacific, but to think sort of across these oceanic spaces. All right. Well, that's great. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Jaden, and we'll look forward to maybe having you on again. Wonderful. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs>